podcast, the only book club podcast that refuses to give up its chilly and kind of windy seaside home on the island of Jura. There <laughs> sounds like there are a few places on earth that permit a kind of fisherman sweater vibe aesthetic all year round. That's what I'm looking for. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I could do without kind of the salt water and the salt water smells, but, you know, trade that for a harsh island home living on some rocks. I think it'd be worth it. <laughs> I don't mind the uh, living by the ocean and, and enjoying those smells, <laughs> the clam flats and everything. It's it's uh, not not terrible for me. <laughs> okay, I, I've always found the images to be more romantic than the other sensory details and the you know the smells that waft over you. I guess I'm Orwellian in that way. I can, I can <laughs> oh yeah, mm-hmm. I can misuse the Orwell description in that sense. <laughs> if you have no idea why we're talking about living in Jura, which is a island in scotland that is because you have arrived at a part two book club episode for orwell and oh no i put orwell first see my own bias churchill and orwell the fight for freedom (laughs) is the name of the book we'll be discussing today we are as i mentioned the lightly literary podcast i'm travis joined by my co-host amanda hey amanda hello this is part two of a book club, so if you're looking for part one, or if you haven't had a chance to read Churchill and Orwell, The Fight for Freedom by, was it Thomas E. Ricks? Yep. There we go, Thomas E. Ricks. Then you can go find the recommendation in the feed, and also part one of the book club in the feed. Today we'll be spoiling, if you want to call it that, for historical nonfiction, but we'll be spoiling the entirety of the book, discussing all parts of it and aspects of it. If that doesn't bother you at all and you just want to hear the discussion about the book, that's perfectly fine, but we'll be chatting about the entire thing and kind of discussing the entirety of the work. If you don't already, follow us on our social media accounts. We have accounts up on Instagram and Facebook. It is at the Lightly Literary Podcast, all one word, so nice and easy. Recommend us to your friends and family. As always, we appreciate you for listening and for recommending us just to anybody who wants a book club to follow. And also, rate us on iTunes or Spotify or just about wherever you found this podcast. I think we're up on all the major platforms. So with that official business out of the way... Let's head on back to Jura, Amanda. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. <laughs> well, you have to have, like, the Scottish brogue with it, right? So, well, Jura or yeah. something. I don't know. <laughs> that was kind of a masculine sound. I liked it. <laughs> that was a bearded sound, you know? Thick mm-hmm. sweater and a beard. Yeah. Okay. I, you pulled it off. I'm not, <laughs> I can barely pronounce names. I'm not going to start then also mistaking accents in there, too. I'm not going to start fumbling <laughs> accents as well. I think I've... <laughs> already done enough damage as it is so i'm I'm good with the harm i've caused with my mispronunciations (laughs) all right let's dig into this one so today for part two of this book we'll be discussing mostly the back half of it though we do have some discussions planned for the entirety of the work as well we will begin with a segment called updated cocktail party quotes with nonfiction books who like to pick quotes that intrigued us or excited us, or just that we felt would make for worthy cocktail party discussion. Amanda, why don't you throw out your cocktail party quote you want to begin with today from the back half? Sure. Um, I chose one from, excuse me, page 254. It says, the passing of the historical context of 1984, that's a reference to the novel 1984, Mm -hmm. seems to have liberated the novel and allowed its message to be recognized as speaking to a universal problem of modern humankind. The evidence for this is that in recent years, readers and writers around the world have responded to Orwell's depictions of a nearly omniscient state. So I thought that was really interesting because one of the aspects of his thesis 
I suppose, is that um, Orwell's um, ideas of individualism and, and individual rights and freedoms um, is something that is still uh, important for today, making this not just a uh, a read about history, but also a read that um, affects our understanding of today specifically. Right. Um, so I, I liked the quote and he mentions a universal problem of modern humankind, but he doesn't actually, I think like name that problem necessarily. So I thought that was pretty interesting too. Um, is it just the universal problem of like power and like the, the need for power? No, I think it's referring to surveillance, just the surveillance, which would be the modern part, you know, right. Right. Certainly there were other, states other forms of government in the past that were more oppressive than i don't know though the totalitarianism that picked up in the 20th century is is almost unprecedented in certain ways too though but at any rate i'm sure you could make a case that there were other oppressive states regimes and political systems but no i think the modern part is the surveillance capability of Mm. because of modern technology yeah, the the big brother thing. Mm-hmm. It's also because he also was talking about that Animal Farm also is uh, kind of still also relevant for today. Not not he really talks a lot about how 1984 is relevant to today as far as the surveillance, um, and then he goes on to talk about like the Iraq War and and then post 9/11, like Americans just like freely being like, "Yep, sure, you can." You can watch everything I do, fine. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, with Animal Farm as well, that was, um, he was talking about, like, the, the need for power and how um, he was, he had shifted from, like, being extremely left, but then seeing the the need for power in, in people that y- you would normally trust. And he's like, he doesn't trust anyone who feels that need for power. So that's why I thought maybe not just surveillance, but as in like the universal problem of modern humankind. Yeah. Surveillance, but I was thinking also maybe power, power yep. hungry. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, I mean, that was the thing the book makes its thesis pretty clear in this point, but I think, it's hard to wrangle Orwell politically, so it is. It's just much safer to read him as kind of he was anti-lying, he was pro-freedom, pro you know freedom of thought, freedom of expression, and more mm-hmm. just anti yeah, just anti-power, anti-greed, anti-interference, which would make right. him in a seemingly appealing libertarian kind of hero, but he doesn't hold up to that political ideology all that well either. Yeah. So. Wasn't he a self-proclaimed socialist? Oh, well, yeah. He, I mean, he got yeah. shot in the neck for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, not only self-proclaimed his whole life, too. He never he never capitulated on that or anything, either. I yeah. mean, that was until the end. That was He, he did defend that party or that ideological bent um, until the end. And the book makes that pretty clear, too. My, yeah. I'll pull another quote, then, because I pulled the quote from that same section of the book when it's discussing Orwell's legacy, so I'll, I'll pull my quote on that one, too. There's a lot of interesting bits there and it's like a lot of the book it's attempting to do maybe too much in a short span but it does cover some 
some interesting ideas anyway. This quote from 259, Orwell's new relevancy appears to have made him in recent years for the first time a kind of celebrity frequently appearing in popular culture. A Google alert on Orwell maintained during the course of writing this book produced a steady flow every day of 20 to 30 citations of him in newspapers, magazines, websites, and other media. And then he talks about the types and then here's some examples. Here's a typical usage from the Wall Street Journal's right-wing editorial page. To adapt, to adapt George Orwell's model for Oceania, under Mr. Obama, friends are enemies, denial is wisdom, and capitulation is victory. Here's another, written a few weeks later by a liberal college student. America is not yet an Orwellian dystopia, but while their policies are close enough to deserve that yet, a vote for a Republican candidate is a vote that moves America toward 1984. It is easy to mock these invocations of Orwell, but that would miss the point, because they're an important and beneficial aspect to them. It is clear that his works have instructed many people in how to be wary of the numbing rhetoric of government pronouncements, of pervasive official surveillance, and most of all, of state intrusion into the realm of the private individual. So there's a couple things here that are interesting. I don't disagree about kind of his lending of vocabulary to certain critiques or to certain ways of critiquing government, critiquing those in power. Like the author says at the end there, it's admirable that, you know, this language is something all people can speak in. But the other thing is it becomes a form of kind of meaningless mush, though, because if if both political parties can wield it and they seem like wield it freely then it doesn't it actually doesn't mean very much at all and so it kind of just be, doesn't it, it's not very evocative if everyone can say it about everything else all the time now right. the thing that was tracked well in the book too is that totalitarianism is not a political ideology but more of a way of running and structuring a government in a society and the, it just so happened that world war ii and then the cold war put on display different forms of political ideology and how they would run a totalitarian government so it's mm. it's like it's just very hard to graph this onto party ideologies when really he was against the very foundational structures of how a society could be run and how a government would interfere with that or how a government would supplement that or structure it so it's just i don't know it, it is awkward i i kind of agree with the language aspect but I don't know. It does it does feel like Orwell's I don't know, his rhetoric can feel a bit hyperbolic in a in a sense or something when it's just grafted onto modern political discourse. I'm not sure if those examples like resonated with you, but I, I can see why well and you know, the author did say it's easy to mock those usages or whatever because it's right. I feel like when you reach for Orwell these days and maybe this is just my own reading of him or something, my own history bleeding into this but i feel like if you if i was in a conversation with someone about political whatever policies atmosphere of today whatever just any political discourse and they made a reference to orwell i would kind of it feels almost simplistically hyperbolic or something Mm -hmm. so i think i think that their use of it yes i think for a lot of politicians the use of his examples are hyperbolic to to them and therefore it seems that way to us but i think that the ideas that orwell expresses it's meant to be a warning for both sides right like um so it's not surprising to me that both conservatives and um liberals are using his quotes out of context right um because it's it's meant to be a warning for anybody in power 
Um, mm-hmm. Anybody, who, a- any form of government that is um, trying to implement protections for society. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I could see it as being hyperbolic, but I, I, I think I understand why both sides are are grasping. At, yeah, well, uh, it's quotes he, from 1984. His, he's just become so popular, and he's in the consciousness now. Like he's, it's, he's a pop culture level figure, so it's easy to you want to grab for illusions, especially if you're you know producing rhetoric for the public or right. any you know even remotely public audience. You want to grasp for illusions that can be understood. I here's what I'll do because I love doing this annoying rhetorical task. Let's put <laughs> or, let's put Orwell's own criti- criticisms up against use of his language then because this is another cocktail party quote I had on 184 and 85 he does finally outline I think it's probably his most famous piece of nonfiction writing. It was the one that in that class we definitely talked about the most. He wrote a little bit on politics in the English language. It's almost like his advice for writers, in, in a sense. And so Ricks does talk about it for a few pages. He summarizes his point succinctly, offering six, quote, elementary rules. One, never use a metaphor, simile, or other figure of speech which you are used to seeing in print. Two, never use a long word where a short one will do. Three, if it is possible to cut a word out, always cut it out. Four, never use the passive where you can use the active. Five, never use a foreign phrase, a scientific word, or a jargon word if you can think of it in everyday English equivalent. And six, break any of these rules sooner than say anything outright barbarous. So... I just think I've always found these rules for writing pretty pretty instructive or, or interesting, at least in his role as a journalist and you know political writer, and then also a fiction writer. I think it influences right. his fiction too. But mm-hmm. isn't aren't our isn't our use of Orwellian phrases failing his own test of effective political discourse? Then I mean, don't, don't aren't we breaking at least a few of those rules by using the mishmash terms that? that he invented and then have, and then have lost kind of direct meaning or, you know, I think, I think again, they do hold up pretty well against some totalitarian aspects, but uh, it's just, it's hard to find examples of that a la world war two or even the cold war, except for North Korea at this point. And then even like the China example these days, modern China is becoming such a mushy example of this. It's very, it's challenging to apply it directly though. You could attempt to maybe, I mean, there's not really, they're, they are probably as close as we've gotten. Um, but at any rate, let's get back to the basic question, though. I mean, does, aren't we breaking those rules? Well, I don't know. He doesn't mention anything about illusions, per se, but I think that, yes. It's when, a figure when of speech. You can, yeah, it's a figure of speech. But he was talking specifically about metaphor. Well, it's his but, or other figure of speech. That wouldn't yeah. count under that grouping? I don't know. Never use Maybe, a foreign phrase so. or a jargon word. These aren't jargon words. Yeah, that's the. Hmm. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, I, I, like the terms like Big Brother and stuff like that. That those ideas. Well, that's what, why su- it becomes to me a bit a touch of hyperbole, and I think it's. I, I'm, uh, 1984 is a work of fiction I, I found very gripping and engaging when I read it all those years ago, and my criticisms of it aren't that, basically. But, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I think in his kind of outlining at the end of Orwell's legacy and everything, it's, I don't know, it feels slightly more messy and complicated, and it could just be that once you reach a certain critical mass of, of 
popularity of cultural kind of diffusion or something i almost feel like you have to turn a little bit into mush i, I don't know maybe this is like some elitist uh you know point of view or something but it's like when you make something that appeals to there's a certain threshold you cross or something when you reach a certain amount of popularity that's like you're always going to lose a little bit of your sharpness then because I, I almost feel like if if you find if you manage to produce something so appeal, mass appeal it almost feels like something's going to be lost in it i don't know i mean i'm sure there's counterexamples to that in in life but yeah anyway i don't know if it holds up well to his own cri- criticisms yeah I hadn't thought about it like that. You know, it's always useful to point the author back at him or herself and see how see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, see see how that turns out. I suppose. Any other? Um, I have one more cocktail party quote, but it'll be a brief one. I'm not sure if you did. You have any thoughts on his writing advice or that that section about that um, article or essay? Um, the, the writing section I thought was interesting too. And, and it brought to mind, um, I haven't read it yet, but, uh, Stephen King also wrote, um, a nonfiction book about like his processes for writing and, and like, he also does not like adverbs and stuff like that. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for Orwell too, a lot of it, it ends up being, and they give examples too on 185, but it's a lot of it's euphemism, you know, calling things pacification or rectifying frontiers. It's just a lot of, yeah, I just think you should be, in his mind, as direct and harsh as the reality of it would be. You know, it's sort of. Right. Well, and then also, I remember this is from that college like survey class I took about him. But the, the professor was really big on the passive voice. That was his, like, personal soapboxy thing. And so we ended up studying that. I feel like that's one thing that Orwell also really loathed. D- yeah. He just didn't want things to be deflected, you know? If you're right. going to pin blame, you should really pin it directly and not kind of, yeah, dance around it. Or I think the modern example, or at least current events 2020, 2021 example, would be, and I feel like I see this now in the news media, or at least critics of news media, it's, it's all around police violence these days, police shootings. And so it's when those things are reported, you know, there's so much passive voice, you know, person, person was shot, mm-hmm. person was right. killed or, you know, the officer, uh, I forget some of the other expressions, but it's, yeah, that, it's that kind of thing that he so loathed, you know, not attributing the violence to the person who did the violence. So, right. Anyway, that's, that would probably be the clearest one. And then other, what, what other cocktail party quotes for you? Um, I chose one from page 170, and it says, Churchill, of course, understood well that mass murder was not just a matter of jokes with the Russian leader. The prime minister had been informed six months earlier that Stalin, in the spring of 1970, almost certainly had ordered the execution of 20,000 Polish officers in the Katyn Katyn forest near Smolensk. That knowledge was made more excruciating by the fact that neither Churchill nor Roosevelt was in a position to denounce Stalin for that atrocity, and that both, in fact, would suppress efforts during the war to investigate the massacre. I had no idea about this. Mm -hmm. So when I read that, I was like, what? And, um, I mean, like, effect, like, I guess they were pretty effective in suppressing that. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, But... That I I had no idea about that, and and I knew that Stalin like had committed some atrocities and stuff, obviously, but to have um, but to know that Roosevelt and Churchill knew that and and continued to like suppress that, 
information, I was like, wow, like how would how would Orwell feel about that? He would not approve, obviously. Um, right, right. But uh, I, I, I was just astounded reading that. And I was like, wow, there's just so much more. Like I had mentioned um, in the previous episode, like there's so much about the war and, and the politics going on at that time that I just have no idea about. Yeah. I know we remarked in the first episode, at least I had some kind of digression about how, yeah, war just skews your perception of human life it, it can it can dilute or kind of twist and contort your view of these things and that's right. another classic example of just well you, you know you put up with a lot more from your allies in a mass casualty event than you'd probably ever expect you would you know it just happens mm-hmm. you know if russia's willing to how many people did they get killed in the war i mean their war effort was basically just endlessly recommit new soldier group i mean they had like 20 million people die or something in world war ii so it's just like if you yeah if if at some point your ally is fighting that fight and in the meantime you're like well did we you know is this a massacre do we can we just you know we'll worry about this later and the book does outline i think at least from churchill's point of view his wariness and everything with the with the new world order part of that though i'm not sure if you felt this too i think is the author portrays as kind of justifiably just kind of bitter old man things, you know, that his time is now over in a sense. And Mm -hmm. some of it was legitimate concern. Obviously the cold war was a pretty dangerous time for the world. So in that sense, some of it was justified, but then a bit of it too felt personal to him. Just kind of, he's, he was upset that his lot was not drawn anymore. Right. Right. Yeah. The, um, the decline of the British empire is definitely one of the, the subjects that, um, Rick's the author kind of like lightly touches on, um, several times in the book. So for sure. Yeah. An interesting one. I've got one more quote, but it won't be too long of a, of a cocktail party quote. I did pull a, a third one. It's just, I wanted to pull something from Churchill. Um, naturally I gravitated toward Orwell. He's a figure I found more interesting in the past. And I thought overall that this duel um, biography. I thought it was more Churchill centric and I was drawn to some of that cause I didn't know a lot about it, but I, I still found myself in the, t- in some or in total, I don't know, thinking more about Orwell, thinking more about his life and influence and stuff. I'm not sure. Just personal bias, I guess. Um, I found this part about Churchill's well, there's a couple of things here I want to discuss. Let me just throw this out there. I'm 159. It's uh, about Churchill and Roosevelt corresponding during the war. Churchill frequently bit his tongue. In April 1942, FDR sent him some advice on how to handle India. Churchill drafted a blistering response that began, I am greatly concerned to receive your message. He went on to threaten to step down from the premiership over the issue. Then he put aside that angry draft and wrote a new message that instead started, I have read with earnest attention your masterly document. That change feels almost electric, psychologically charged couple things here i think firstly just seeing that history in action having that you know having those records and being able to look at a person's kind of thought process in the moment and everything and i just found that that stuff fascinating when he was able to unearth documents like that i found Mm -hmm. that quite engaging i'm not sure if any other ones stood out to you but this one just i remembered thinking well there's another part i'll get to but were there any other moments like that that stood out things that he unearthed that felt i don't know interesting for me, um, oh man, there's there's quite a f- few documents that I was like, wow, where did he find that from? Um, the the thing that stuck out to me was, um, and I don't know how he knew this, but when um, 
uh, Roosevelt comes out um, and tells his wife to get rid of um, the the Kennedy, which yeah, JFK's dad, right, um, right. <laughs> the ambassador. Right, yeah, the ambassador. Um, I thought that was like that's something that stuck in my mind, and I was like, that's not that's not a document, but how does he know that? It must have been in somebody's diary, right? Like mm-hmm. maybe Eleanor Roosevelt's diary or something. Yeah, but... some kind of interview, perhaps. Well, the yeah. and so this one stood out, but then I also wanted to throw this in here too, and I could have pulled other examples of this. I, do you agree with the author's assessment of this? Because there were a few times during his literary criticism or his assessment of speeches, I just didn't, he was pulling quotes and then assessing them. And I just thought that's not what I'm getting from this or like, and I don't know. I mean, maybe obviously he's a biographer of this, so he knows Churchill's demeanor and intentions, but I am greatly concerned to receive your message. Blistering? I Really? Like that, it, it's just it, greatly concerned. It, I, that just seems like a head of state expressing great. Con- I don't. What's blistering about that? He didn't even attack or critique Roosevelt in that quote. Like I don't. Right. Th- and there were other moments where that he would segue to or for, or into or out of his commentary with those kinds of um, descriptions, and I would just think I don't like. Eh, that's a bit of a. I don't know. That's a bit of a stretch or a misread for me. I guess I just have to accept that the whole thing was blistering because I didn't see the rest of it, right? But it, that happened more than uh, a few times for me. Yeah, that. Um, now that you point that out, yeah, that part did not seem blistering to me at all. Um, and then the this the revision part, I was like, that <laughs> that seemed almost like the the revision that he actually sent to Roosevelt. That one to me sounded like it was kind of like he was just so sycophantic there. Yeah, and, masterly. And I was like, is, is that is that po- political speech? Like, is that how presidents and prime ministers usually talk to each other? Like, yeah. Even with like Tony, he gives the the examples with like Tony Blair's messages to um, right President Bush and stuff. Like the, the language there, I was just like. Huh, it's pretty informal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a definitely a certain, certainly a sign and product of its time. And then also Churchill, as he outlined at the beginning pretty well, had his own way of speaking about history, his own elevated prose and all that stuff. I just, and then even the masterly document, I he says it, it was feels electrically charged. Like, again, just, I get that it's heightened for sure and um, almost in a way, almost subservient. I mean, when you call someone else masterly, it's not, <laughs> there's always a hint of subservience in that description. But yeah, even right. that, like I read electro electrified and I'm like, ah, I don't yeah, Okay. I, you know, I, I guess I can't look at the rest of his writing, right? This is as much as I know about his writing and his rhetoric. So I, I can't, I, it's not my place to disagree per se, but there were more than enough of those transitions that I thought, I'm not sure I'm, you know, <laughs> I don't know if I'm vibing with this person's readings a hundred percent on these, but okay. You just got to kind of ride the wave with him. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe his, um, adjective choices were not. (laughs) Yeah, it could be. It could be. Yeah. Or something that I was maybe, yeah, maybe I was just bristling against it. Um, excellent. Okay. Well, let's move to the imaginary essays. I feel like I always throw mine to you first and I'll, I'll do so again here. This is the part, by the way, (laughs) dearest listeners that Amanda and I make up essay prompts about the book. Now that we've finished it, this is our final way to kind of analyze the book, think about it through a different lens and try and just assess what we read and understand different components to it. And we do that through imaginary essays that we've outlined. We did not produce an actual piece of writing, of course, just some pretend. I did, so I'm glad you did 
this. I almost wanted to type it up because I saw in the document. I didn't even intend, and I miswrote my prompt. I didn't intend for you to do all the cliches. I just wanted you to pick one or, or whatever interested you, basically. Um, but let me let me throw my prompt at you, and I'll try and explain it. Um, I found these on LinkedIn, so hooray for LinkedIn. I wanted to pull some prompt about leadership, at least because the Churchill stuff was so obviously focused on those ideas. Orwell, in his own way, too, he was a thought leader, in, in a sense, like an idea leader. Um, so I, I just thought I'd have you assess some leadership things, and I find one fun way to do that is just by assessing cliches in a work. So if it's about love, you know, pull some love cliches and see if they're see how they hold up, basically, to see if there's any truth in them or interest in them. And so I went to a LinkedIn article about these are, I think they said these are the worst leadership cliches. And there were 10, but I pulled three. There is no I in team. Give me 110% and think outside the box. So the prompt for you is basically just respond to those via the book. Like, do you think that they, do you think the book expands on these or has anything to say about these? Do you think Orwell and Churchill would respond to any of these cliches? Like, take it away. Yeah. So the, there is no I in team and the think outside the box, I think are, uh, pretty easy to respond to with this mm -hmm. book because um so with with churchill he was the leader and he questioned everyone right like the all of his subordinates and stuff like he he was kind of um a busybody is how his subordinates felt right yeah, and they yeah. constantly felt like they were just like constantly being audited by um it would be like our president just like constantly auditing us. Right. And so it's, um, so he was constantly questioning and pushing and changing the, the strategies based on what he felt, um, was the best choice. Um, and he definitely, while he does believe in teamwork because he did choose his own, um, war cabinet, um, and he did, ask them for opinions and stuff like that. Um, he definitely relied on his knowledge to, um, to kind of make the ultimate decisions a lot of the times. Um, and this is what Ricks says about Churchill. This is from page 192. He says, other wartime leaders would do well to imitate his inquisitive approach. They should not look for consensus and instead should examine differences between advisors, asking them for the reasons for their different views. If meetings are not contentious, they probably are not productive. Um, so I thought that would be kind of a, a good response to the idea of there's no I in team. It's like th there's a team, but there's definitely still a leader who makes the calls. And I would also point out that like when he says if meetings are not contentious, they are probably are not productive um, in your average board meeting. If it's contentious, then probably your boss is like unhappy and will end up like firing you or something because <laughs> right, right. the approach now is like the the definition i suppose for team is different than the definition for team for for churchill well where churchill uses the team as a sounding board and as a as, as a a way to uh get knowledge and to get information and to kind of question himself and others whereas teamwork in a lot of ways now is just you follow the what everybody else wants you to do right so it's like mm -hmm. you have a directive everybody has their assigned parts 
and you have to complete your part and then that's teamwork rather than like a whole lot of conversation and stuff like that. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I, I get that comparison. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that team player now, the definition of that now is, is kind of different than what Churchill would have supposed teamwork would be. Yeah. And he, he even elevated, I forget the names of course, as always, but he elevated one of the generals who had frequent arguments with, and the author made a point. I think this is more in part one, but that he, yeah, he kept him around. And even though he quoted in private, the guy was like, I think Churchill hates me. You know, we did, we disagree, but then he promoted him. He kept him around. So it's, you yeah. know, and I think you were right to point out the cabinets, the, or whatever they call their cabinet war team. The, I war, ca- yeah, war, the war cabinet. cabinet yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's the best you put that clearest example of that for sure. Yeah. Um and for Orwell, um Orwell was more of like the a subordinate although he was put into positions of leadership like when he was in the home guard he was given his own Yeah. Tr- troop <laughs> group of people um in order to I don't know what the the British band of friendship. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um so but he he definitely believed in questioning um, and especially questioning the leadership, um, which is when he he's somebody who says that in his writing, obviously, people need to question their leadership. People need to constantly question. So it's like the it's like Churchill's belief in questioning. But instead of questioning the subordinates, Orwell believes in questioning the leadership. Um, and that is the idea of teamwork where everybody works together. Yes, but you shouldn't just like blindly follow the herd. And right. instead, n- instead of just doing as you're told, questioning that leader and seeing the, the reasoning behind all of that. Um, and this is tied in with his belief in socialism, which is also a kind of like just a big teamwork thing for him. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um so, um, but again, even with socialism, it's not about like just blindly following the government and allowing the government to make all these decisions. It's about everybody working together, yes, but making sure that everybody still has a voice as well. Um, and so that also ties in with the idea of like think outside the box, where there's both of them are all about questioning. So, questioning those who are on your team and questioning those who are leading your team for both of them. And then thinking out the side of the box, as far as like being creative. Yeah. I mean, of course they're both writers, so they're, they're creative. I wonder how do you square Orwell's time at the BBC and kind of his general response to the war with his kind of leadership? Cause it's, he complained in his diary frequently about the BBC. It's a bureaucratic mess. It's inefficient. I'm not doing, I'm I'm not doing anything important here, but you know, he stayed for a while. It's not like he showed up, realized it was a junk institution that wasn't effective and then left. He like, I don't, it also didn't seem like he really pushed it to change either. He kind of just thought it was junk, became a cog for a little bit and then left. Yeah. I wondered about, um, so that position. And then he also said, when he was put in a, a leadership leadership position with the home guard, he was complaining about how the home guards, other leaders were just like right. really terrible at it. Um, but we don't see any evidence of him going to either those he's working with or those in, in leadership positions to talk about that. But we have no evidence like he could have for all we know. Right, right, right. Uh, but, um, 
yeah, he just, I don't know. I don't know whether he, he advocates for questioning, but I don't know that he actually did question. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's just, that's the interesting part about the biographies too, the, and the people he chose. It's, Orwell did that stuff through writing criticism of art, producing his journalism, I but put up against a person who had a literal control of millions of people and, you know, in the war, I think they quoted it like 800,000 British soldiers died. Like, you're comparing that person, a person who had that command and influence versus a person who just was kind of a curmudgeon writer and trying to produce his criticisms, you know, like it's, it is, I don't know. Yeah. It just, it makes for quite a juxtaposition trying to evaluate them against each other in that way. It's, yeah, yeah I don't know, but I, I think, yeah, I, I struggled with that because Orwell, I think, and even the, the author comments on this, I believe in the wartime parts, but he's kind of surprised by how much he just kind of like went along with the war, accepted that war was necessary. But that's part yeah. of maybe Orwell's pragmatism. He also went to fight in the war in Spain because he just thought that that's what that socialism could use that or that it needed to be defended. So maybe he was right. just pretty practical about war, I guess. Yeah. Any other uh, thoughts on the cliches or parts you want to discuss with those? Nope, I'm good. Okay, well, let's keep thinking outside the box. And I just can't hear that now and not think of Taco Bell. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's what American marketing has done to me. Oh, goodness. <laughs> and like the give me 110%, That's I can't. It's just a sports. That's just sports now. All sports are it that. It is. <laughs> yeah, you know? it is. You got to break down. Work it till you break it. <laughs> All right. Do you want to throw your essay at me? I, I fear my response won't be very lengthy, but I'll probably have you chime in. So go ahead. Yeah, sure. Um, so mine is death is a motif in this book. In fact, the first two paragraphs in this book describe both Churchill and Orwell's brushes with death in the 1930s. The biographical parts of the book conclude with, of course, the deaths of these men, though Ricks goes on to discuss the enduring legacy of these men later. Why would the author begin the book with near death scenes? What is death and how is death depicted or examined in this book? Yeah, I really struggled with this one. I Sorry. so that's okay. I, I I came up with an answer. Hopefully, I thought outside the box enough to give a response. So let me <laughs> let me start with how you introed it, though. I, that part of the book, the intro with the death scenes and all that, the car accident, and the neck um, injury, the bullet wound. It definitely gripped me, but I was reading it in a much cheaper fashion, just as a sort of, hey, look, here's something dramatic, and, you know, it, these men, it happened nearly at the same time, isn't that a coincidence? And then I, just in terms of the thesis of the book and kind of the project, I just read it as kind of like man, isn't history wild? They could have easily both died and then this book wouldn't exist and who knows what history would have done to itself, you know? And so it's like, if you want to, if you want to show that two people had a profound impact on the world and world events, you know, the way the world has turned out, like showing this kind of a moment, the, the razor thin margins of life and death, all that stuff, it just felt like a dramatic setup to me of like, man, history, huh? Okay, let's get into how they mattered. <laughs> so I didn't, I, I, when you brought this up, I then, my brain was racking through kind of, okay, what, how did I think of death or defeat in a way or what deaths really jumped out to me? Obviously, like you said, they both die at the end and talk about legacy, but that was inevitable. I, so I came up with two responses to this though, that I think these are what stood out to me anyway. To me, the death I remembered when you threw the prompt at me, the very first thing I thought of actually was when Orwell's wife died. Uh, Eileen, I believe was her name, or Aileen. 
and Eileen, yeah, Eileen. And so that's my initial reading where it was kind of like, okay, that was my quick response. I really think that her death in the book left the biggest impression because while we don't have apparently a lot of his direct responses written down, I, her whole demeanor leading up to it, how she was pr- profoundly depressed for a long time and was kind of, she had this kind of ghostly presence in the book and didn't seem to, it was unclear, you know, he kept commenting on how she was grieving for a very long time and maybe wasn't really that engaged with the world or what have you. I think then on 184, when the when her death is confirmed, it also kind of sets this intense response or tone um, he, you know, Orwell on those pages goes on to buy a pistol. He's he's a bit paranoid about getting killed by um, Soviet or Russian communists. There, it says he withdrew from the world, spending as much time on the far, almost roadless northern end of the remote island of Jura, off the coast of Scotland. He was lonely, and then this is the per- paragraph that <laughs> this is like this should be a chapter or something. Um, he proposed marriage to a variety of young women, often barely knowing them. He knew he was ill and wanted to ensure there was someone to care for his son, Richard, after he was gone. One friend, Celia Kerwan, gently rejected his proposal but kept seeing him. In another encounter, he invited to tea Anne Popham, a, bar- a neighbor he barely knew. She recalled that he asked her to sit on the bed, embraced her, and said, You're very attractive. Do you think you could care for me? She found the awkward approach embarrassing and left as quickly as she could disengage herself. So it just the effect on his demeanor, and then so knowing that plus knowing that his best or most important works were yet to come, I just this this moment in the book, I'm not one who reaches for biographical info on authors. I usually treat the book as its own little project, and I don't. I'm not one to dig into the extracurricular material and then color my reading or whatever. I kind of like I want the art to stand up alone, and then you know, maybe I'll get some periphery stuff later or something. You know what I mean? I like to just expose myself to the thing they made. Maybe then I'll let, you know, background details color it. But I just don't know how you could know that about him, know that he was responding that way, these these desperate, really sad attempts, and just kind of this, like, almost pathetic figure after his wife's death, I justifiably so, just kind of wrecked. And and not have it affect how you then read his the other things he he wrote, which were you know, pretty disillusioned with the world, pretty harsh, pretty cynical, cynical about love, about the government, about all that stuff. And I, so I just thought that death affected me the most, at least in terms of, you know, I don't think I have a thesis about it, but when I remember this book, I'll remember her death and then his response and kind of, it casts a pall over, I guess, how I have to read and interpret that stuff, knowing his state of mind. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, that was for his side, I mean, you know, they must have had some kind of deep romance because she traveled with him to Spain to, like, fight in the war, be part of that with him. You know, she escaped the country with him. And so, you know, it's their life together must have been pretty, you know, passionate and had some kind of depth of love, um, which I guess explains his response to it in that, you know, really desperate, just, yeah, just a sad ending. So that was, for him, that's immediately what I thought of when I thought of, well, how does, what is the connection to Orwell and how does he relate to death? So I'm not sure if that struck you, but that, that was what I thought of for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. E- eerie uh, for stuff. me, it was, uh, yeah, his, his death too was like a slow death as well. So, right. Right. Yeah. And he did have someone that did care for him that he met someone or, you know, she was just there for the ending apparently helping yeah. care for him. But yeah, so that, that I remembered clearly. Or what or, uh, Churchill's and how that kind of death idea relates to him is a bit more abstract, but it's just so much of the book dedicates itself to this. This is what I thought for Churchill right away. 
it's just that his political career death, the author really wanted to fixate on that because, you know, as soon as the war ends, he's immediately voted out. And then it just, it sounds like his life, his mental faculties, everything just kind of went away and just kind of petered out in, in a sense. It's like he gave all of his, his vitality to the war effort. And then when it was over, he was just kind of a lost wandering soul, you know? So I think that it's, it's a type of death, you know, it's a, more of a career death, but that's immediately what I thought of with Churchill too, not his immediate, you know, not his actual death, but just the way he kind of petered out in, in the book or in the narrative and in, into history even, um, there's a, there's a quote from 201 or a series of things here that I pulled for this idea. It says, as the outlines of the post-war world began to be seen, Churchill grew gloomier, falling into one of his dark moods that he famously called the Black Dog. He told his friend Violet Bonham Carter over lunch in August 1944 that he had concluded that a terrible world lies ahead of us. She reflected in her diary that night, W gave me the impression of being a very tired man. Above all, I didn't feel the exultation in approaching victory I had expected. A few weeks later, he ominously told his doctor, I do not believe in this brave new world. And then kind of goes from there. And I think it's just to have something, to have fought and achieved something so on the world stage, so unprecedented, like literally in terms of numbers and figures and just the warfare of it all and the brutality. And then to get out of it and then this is your response is just especially bleak, you know, that he was mm-hmm. given, he allowed himself almost no time to, not that you need to celebrate in the in the fun party birthday cake sort of sense a thing like this, but you have to at least exhale in some ways for the the mission or exhale for the world you wanted to preserve or something. But I guess, you know, ultimately the author, I guess, was making this point, right, that they both saw something coming that other people maybe were too blind to see, which is the Cold War and the battling of those ideologies. So that's, yeah, when I think of Churchill and death, I think of just basically this, you know, you can win something but lose something grander kind of a cliche, I guess. Is that the that's mm-hmm. the wartime cliche? So I, I thought yeah. of that moment. Um, there's one other moment I'll briefly re- reference in regards to his kind of like political death. But the, the Tehran conference, the first mm-hmm. kind of meeting of those, what do they call those, allied powers in World yeah. War Two. I think because then it, t- it talks about, um, it, there's some quotes on here, but he, he does say... Um, Earlier that day, he remember he gave Stalin a sword, and you know they're doing all the, the diplomatic BS. Um, Churchill saw the decline of Britain illuminated at Tehran. It was he saw a major moment in world history. Some of his closest advisors were not as perceptive. There was a person who wrote he was bored by the conference and have little to do with it. I'm wasting my time. But he Churchill flew out of Tehran in a black mood, anguished by the passing of British supremacy in the world, and his personage changed after that moment. So it's just. I think it was, you know, his, he knew he wasn't being relied on as much. The empire seemed to be over, you know, he wasn't going to have overseas control of things. Britain wasn't going to anymore. And so I just, when I think of death in terms of Churchill, I'll think of a person who, I don't know, maybe there's some kind of sacrificial component to this. I could tease out if I had, um, had given myself more runway to do it, but that he, you know, he gave himself and, and really put in a thorough, and really thoughtful, uh, considered effort into it, into something. But that at the end of it, it's like, it didn't even, in a sense, didn't work out for him or, or, you know, you get what you wanted, but ultimately it wasn't, it wasn't the satisfaction you wanted or something. And so, yeah, I think in both cases, they, I will say that I, I leave this book with both figures and those, 
notions of death, how it affected them, how it, you know, how it ended their lives in a sense, or how it cast a pall over or shadow over the end of their lives. Certainly with kind of a, I don't know, not a bleak picture of them, but definitely kind of this downcast. I mean, I guess history holds up their their influence you know in a positive way but it definitely it put a kind of a downcast tone or a gloomy tone over the end of the book yeah i um it, which i suppose it's it's meant to i mean it's a yeah. it's kind of like a warning at the end of the book too like you know be be aware of you know too much surveillance and stuff like that um but when I was thinking about like death and stuff as well. I was, I was thinking that Churchill and Orwell's like prolonged deaths there, like they, they came close right at the very beginning. And then they, Mm -hmm. they have this prolonged um, death scene with Churchill's um, he had like a minor heart attack and like a stroke and all this also prolonged. Right. Right. And then, and then Orwell's, um, issues with with his lungs and stuff that was a prolonged um thing too and it it mirrored actually the decline of the british empire as well right so that's like the prolonged death of that as well um and so i thought that was pretty interesting and and the uh, i suppose also we could relate that to the idea of um politics the the politics that they did not agree with and and stuff like that that's like still some some strongholds there um some pockets like you know with with china and with north korea there's still some pockets of of these um political ideas um that in and economic ideas that they don't believe in that are slowly starting to decline and they're also going into this like slow decline so it's like these great things, these big things, right? Um, these big ideas. It takes a and it takes a while to kind of uh, um, to end, to kind of like go back to not being like a major yeah. big thing. Like their legacies, their legacies are continuing on, but um, hopefully with with the passage of time, the we won't feel the the need to quote Orwell as much in fear and in yeah as a warning to each other you would you would think so I'm the last five or six years have called some of that stuff into question I think for a lot of people but yeah I mean there's some backsliding and China is its own I mean it's almost it's almost like the author was too scared to dive into it and I earlier in the podcast hedged because it's such a complicated example. It's really unprecedented. Yeah. Like it's such a strange mixture of both communism and totalitarianism, but then also really ruthless and pragmatic capitalism and stuff. It's just its own yeah. thing. It really, it really yeah. has no direct comparison. Like it's, it's clear authoritarianism in some senses. And then in others, it's like pretty wild, you know, open market capitalism. And then, but then it's Knox and there's party ties, but some aren't. And I, I don't, it's like almost, you're almost afraid to crack it open unless you're going to make the book about it. You know, it's like you can't, right. it's hard to scratch the sur- surface of that or make a casual reference to it. Cause it's almost everything you could say could be contradicted and which makes it a tough mm-hmm. case for sure. 
Um, and I, right. at the end, you'll notice, I, and I couldn't agree with him more about it, but he says something like, I wonder what Orwell would have done, like living in China for a few years and like observing what ha- what's happening there. And it's, I think that's his way of acknowledging like, yeah, I don't know. I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> Wouldn't it be cool? Okay. <laughs> see you later. Like, I don't really have much to say about it. Um, it's complicated. Um, so anyway, okay, let's move to the lost pages. We have two more segments left. We're now going to look outside the book, at least briefly. We like to end, or at least do one ending segment where we think what the book could have used or what it should have added in, what it's missing, maybe some follow-up we'd want to research or some other chapter it could have included. Um, Amanda, what are your lost pages for this book? Sure. Um, I said that there's a lot of different ideas at play in this book. There's the British Empire in decline, the rising superiority of America. Uh, Ricks is very obviously proud of this country and, and <laughs> takes least, pains to uh, mm-hmm. point out the superiority of it. <laughs> at least it's military um, might. No question on that front. Yeah, he makes yeah. that very clear. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's the complexities and pitfalls of communism, though there's not much discussion of Orwell's idea of socialism. Um, and of course, the idea of individual freedom. All of these could be separate theses or, or books. Um, but for me, I think that more explore, exploration of Orwell's specific idea of socialism because he started off super to the left, but then over time and with his experiences, he started to like, you know, he was still liberal, but like not as extreme in his ideas uh, towards the end. Mm -hmm. And so I think that more exploration of what Orwell's, like what his final kind of um, idea of what the ideal uh, socialist country would be, Mm -hmm. I would like to read something about that, especially because Rick's is in his literary analysis of 1984 and animal farm. He says, well, um, he he does a lot of analysis of how it takes pains to like point out why like an animal farm communism specifically is like bad <laughs> mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Um, and then in 1984 like um, why uh, a country with like an authoritarian uh, state is like not good but then there's and, and it's great but if we had a clearer definition from Orwell about what his utopia would be. Um, right. As far as like his, his specific ideas of socialism, I think that some of the analysis that Rick's offers could be a little bit richer in that yeah, way. The, I think Rick's dodges that through two careful but smart things at the end where he mentions how he never went to America so he his ideas about like industry were pretty colored by Britain's already declining industry at the time yeah. and like he he didn't really witness firsthand like a new more aggressive evolving form of capitalism anyway like he had this kind of quaint pastoral notion of the world like his his idea of socialism would be like more ag- ag- agrarian or something in a way right. like uh, yeah, I think Ricks does at least it's it's like most things in this book, right? To me, not even an expert or anything, but someone who thought about that for at least a semester's worth of time or whatever, like studied it or like it all felt like a pretty decent summary to me. I was like, okay, yeah, like I remember the gist of the well, and it's like we mentioned, right? His legacy is complicated. Like everyone seems to want to claim Orwell for their own ideological right. benefit or something, and that and that is definitely true with his own writings. Like, yeah, he didn't leave with some really clear uh, screed or something 
something like that. Uh, 1984 mm-hmm. is probably as close as you'll get, and that's fiction, so <laughs> that's already tough yeah. tough enough to read into. Um, we got enough pictures in this book. Is my so that's not mine Woo! this time. Yep, yeah, pl- plenty, <laughs> plenty for me. Enjoyed seeing some of those images. I thought it was a uh, you know gave me enough of a, a picture to to work with. So no commentary on that for me. Um, I think the one thing I wanted is impossible, but it was just more Orwell during the war. Uh, the war sections go so heavy Churchill that it, yeah. it was kind of, and I get that he pulled direct correspondence from Orwell. So respect to that. He, he did dug some things up. So maybe there's just not much more to dig into of interest or something. I'm sure he curated that for the reader, but it just, every time Orwell was commenting on the war, it was, you know, a brief couple sentences, you know, got bombed again, annoyed by the supplies, uh, uh, bread or his ration like it's it was just quick stuff I, I suppose I just wanted a bit more about his day-to-day life or his reflections or maybe his, how it affected relationships or something I don't know just yeah it felt like his time during the war was just kind of he accepted it and became pretty practical about things and that was kind of it um, right. the other thing I was all mentioned this isn't so much lost pages it's just some way for me to critique but I when he for, took forays into literary criticism and kind of rhetorical analysis I like I mentioned earlier I found a few of those transitions in like takeaways a bit shallow and I again just maybe even disagreed with some outright so I couldn't tell if that was just him being too quick with it and maybe not elaborating in a way I needed but I don't know some depth on a few of those moments would have helped it, it felt like he moved through some of that criticism at too great a clip or like the quote he chose didn't illustrate the thing I thought he wanted it to in the way that I res- would have responded to because it was just like wait you think that quote shows that <laughs> and so I mm-hmm. that happened again more than a few times enough for me to like really start thinking about it so um yeah that was not really a lost pages but maybe maybe a little more depth on those would have helped me so yeah I agree Yeah. Okay. Let's move to the final section then. We end with some critical assistance where we reach outside of ourselves into the wide world of, well, the internet, I guess, and to find some literary criticism. We will talk about some reviews of this book by other people, and we usually pull one apiece, so we're each going to bring some unique criticism to this. I'll go first, I guess. I've been making you go first all night, so let me me (laughs) jump in. I pulled an article or an essay of a book review by the Cato Institute, which is Um, Heads up, a libertarian think tank. So they produce research and political kind of advice and political policy advice for from a libertarian point of view so i I'd, I'd known them from that reputation and when i saw it come up i i actually kind of wanted to pull a really political review that was my hope because this book i think de- deals in those issues so this is from a review by matthew feeney on that website Uh, First quote, Ricks respectably manages to convey an admiration for Churchill and Orwell without ignoring their faults. He discusses Orwell's early anti-Semitism, his naive faith in centralized economic planning, and the fact that he compiled a list of suspected communists for the British government. And although Churchill won a Nobel Prize in literature, he directly addresses the numerous factual errors in his epic and on and on. I thought this was just an important thing to note because overall, I found the biographies pretty even-handed and pretty rational, Mm -hmm. pretty reasonable. Uh, Nothing ever really jumped out to me in terms of you know skipping things over um did you respond similarly you think yeah i i felt like uh he was pretty even-handed in his treatment of both churchill and orwell yeah especially like when he was talking about uh some of churchill's other writings he yeah was yeah. not afraid to <laughs> pick it apart um, for sure i suppose um and even with orwell's earlier writings too he he's he makes no bones about like how he was not 
in the beginnings, the great writer that he turned out to be later. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was really well done. The only thing that was like very obviously like showing his personal opinions about stuff, I suppose is, is just when he's talking about like the superiority of, of the American response in world war two and everything. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he aggressively makes it clear of the wax and wane, you know, one falls, yeah. one rises. It's, and I think, I mean, it's, I don't know. It would be hard to dispute that that's not true. Just look at the cold war <laughs> and like what happened with nuclear artilleries and all that. So, like, it's hard to say that's wrong, but he, he maybe loops to that point too many times and in too many yeah. different aspects or something. Um, couple yeah. other quotes. Um, this one from the middle of it, Orwell also felt that his firm stance against tyranny endangered his life. Following the publication of animal farm, he bought a pistol to protect himself from communism. As Orwell knew from firsthand experience in Spain, Soviet agents had no qualms when it came to assassinating dissidents. I thought this was an outright misrepresentation of what the book wanted to say about that, because literally the next paragraph in the book says that that was probably more paranoid than justified, though he was on a bit of a hit list in Spain through one of the parties. I forget. I think it was a Soviet-based thing. But there was really no evidence that they went after people other than ex-Soviet politicians who would, like, flee from the country. And so the, the author himself calls it more of a paranoid move than anything else this felt like a little bit of a the author wants to take a shot at the soviet union a bit here because <laughs> it's just like well yeah. the author didn't even really convey it that way he he thought it was more paranoid than anything else exactly yeah rick's yeah. made a point of saying like hey it's yes he was on like the list like they did find evidence that orwell was yeah, on the spain. list but only if he were in spain yeah so, and so no yeah. qualms assassinating distance yeah but again ricks makes it clear that like that's actually not true and when they did yeah. assassinate people not in their country well they did mass killings in their own country but when they assassinated people overseas it was their own people who, who were defecting like which orwell right. was not so it's it just felt that that felt like okay you're sneaking one in there you're trying to like <laughs> that felt mm-hmm. a little biased to me anyway And then the final quote I wanted to pull, um, a glance at the current crop of political leaders uncovers no one with Churchill's rhetorical skills. That is a shame, especially given that Rick's book leaves one feeling that a stubborn political orator with a penchant for drinking the written word in human freedom would be very welcome right now. So too would a journalist with Orwell's writing style, combat experience, skepticism of authority and imagination. A lot to say about this quote and kind of the takeaway from it. I think... Gosh, I'm conflicted here. So firstly, no one with Churchill's rhetorical skills. I don't know. I Some people did give Obama a lot of credit for his speech writing and delivering and stuff. I was never quite as moved, I don't think, as others were by his whole political persona. I, I didn't, didn't dislike the man or anything or his per- persona, but I, people give him a good amount of credit. I... I don't know. Like, it, did Churchill struck you as that inspir? Everyone gets to say inspirational stuff during wartime is what I'm thinking. Getting at here, like it's and even yeah. Rick's notes this. Like, it's hard to be. It's hard to have a motivational driving purpose as strong as we will live or die. Now, I mean, there's no other. There's no other thing in life. There's no other event, moment, policy that where you can ramp it up because the stakes are never literally that, you know. And so that's what, you know, Churchill failed in his other prime minister um, run because there's no galvanizing thing. There's no he couldn't he couldn't narrow his focus on one thing and and say things like blood, sweat and toil or whatever it was. And like, 
I don't know. So I don't know. I feel like we get plenty of rhetoric in America. I, I don't think we need, I don't think there's some void where we need somebody coming in with like more intense political rhetoric. I, <laughs> I don't know. And also the drinking thing I thought was funny because I don't think any modern politician could live the way he lives because yeah. the the information that we have access to, the, the little privacy that people have living a public life now, celebrities or politicians, the same, like, he got away with that lifestyle because it's not like people were taking pictures of his every move. Like, imagine if right. any modern politician, and, you know, they, they've all got their vices and I'm sure their secrets, but imagine if they were, like, publicly drunk basically every day. Like, there, there's no way. No no politician would survive that now. I, I'm not, that's just such an odd thing to call for, you know? Yeah, it's... It makes him, I suppose, seem more um, with with flaws comes like more relatability or That's whatever. True. But like as that. a politician, as a leader, if if we witnessed like Joe Biden um, like downing like an entire bottle of sherry, <laughs> like we would <laughs> be like port. what? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I, there are some politicians that make their name on kind of like, I'm living free, live, but even that, it's also staged in PR now. It's not, mm-hmm. I don't know. And I, you know, it, it's like you see, I remember in the Democratic primaries, whenever that race was a few years back, there were, there were some politicians that were trying to like do like live streams on Instagram and Facebook and like have a beer with me and like, you know, just be friendly. But it's also PR. It's also done through PR now. It just, it feels right. all with a tinge of artificiality. It's like it, none of it. I don't know. You just can't have that this much access to people and then expect them to not be buttoned up at least most of the time because they know, they know the observation is constant. Like you're not, I don't know. I just feel like this is what we, we lose a character like this or a backstory or kind of a private life like that when we expect public figures to basically always be public, you know? Right. So I, I just, I kind of get the notion of the quote a little bit, but also I just shrug and be like, I don't think that's even possible. Also, I will say this pension for the written word, like Obama went to like a Ivy league law school and is like incredibly well read. So I don't, <laughs> and like wrote a, to multiple 500 page books or whatever. Like I don't, that's the thing I'm like, okay. I mean, a lot of politicians, you can criticize them through your armchair all you want. Many of them are corrupt and what, but like a lot of them are highly educated. Like I, you know, that's just a fact. So I, I don't know. (laughs) That's that part. I kind of shrugged at too. I was like, I kind of, yeah, I get it. But, um, (laughs) and then the journalist thing, I would just say, I think publications do good work, but yeah, like rock star journalists or something, war correspondents, that kind of thing. I mean, Orwell wasn't even famous in his day, as they make it pretty clear in the book. So it's not like he was exactly right. crushing it. <laughs> it's more po- uh, posthumous because of the book he wrote. So, yeah, exactly. I, don't, I feel like we, we get some good journalism out there. It's easy to take bashes at the media. But I think if you're careful with the consumption and you, like, think critically about what you're consuming and where it comes from and, you know, you stay open to multiple sources or whatever. I feel like that's not as, I don't know. Media is under attack for sure. It's more the financials that worry me um, than if like there are good people writing good work. Cause I think we, you right. can find that honestly, that doesn't, I didn't find that to be, I'm not like losing sleep over that or something, but you know, interesting quotes at the end. I think those perspectives to take away from it, yearning for those things is reasonable. Um, how about for your article, Amanda and your, your critical assistance? Sure, I got mine from Publishers Weekly. <laughs> Classic. Yeah, and it's just the title, uh, Churchill and Orwell, The Fight for Freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a couple of things that I pulled. Um, Rick's two-time 
Pulitzer Prize winner and senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security, brings the two men together in a book whose model is assumed to be uh, Plutarch's Parallel Lives, side-by-side sketches of people whose existence never overlapped. In vivid prose, Ricks entwines the biographies of two figures who fought in strikingly different ways to achieve similar goals. What is new in this portrayal is their juxtaposition between a single book's covers, though it's unclear on what grounds Ricks chooses to do so. So Hmm. the last sentence where he says it's unclear on what grounds Ricks chooses to do so as far as like the the juxtaposition between um, Churchill and Orwell, I was like, but he, I feel like his thesis is very clear at the beginning. Well, the odd thing is that he says it in the, that they both were against totalitarianism. Like the guy in the quote or guy or man or woman, it says it like, doesn't he? Where am I? Yeah. Yeah. They fought in strikingly different ways to achieve similar goals. That's, I mean, that's basically what the author would say. (laughs) Yeah. That was his thesis. Right. And and the idea that, that their legacies are still affecting the way that we think about um, individualism and freedom today. Like, Mm Mm-hmm. That's that. That's his thesis. So <laughs> that last sentence, I was like, "What?" <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. That yeah. is an odd. Very I'm, strange. Maybe the grounds that they're from the same. Na- maybe if they were from different nations or something, that would. Maybe he feels like it would be shakier. I feel like he does get away, Rick's a little bit with like, well, they were countrymen, which then draws them together, maybe more than they actually were drawn together or something. But yeah, for sure. Yeah, maybe that's doing a bit of the work there. Okay. Yeah. That. Yeah, I, I will say, though, um, that although his thesis is clear and I think that he makes the case well, there are parts of the book, especially with like some of the, the nitty gritty details that he includes and, and some of the the asides that he includes of the times. Um, sometimes I feel I feel like the the information was was not it became too much just about like world war two in general, almost rather than specifically yeah. about the thesis. Um, so, and I, not to, to say that I didn't enjoy the book and, and that I didn't learn a lot cause I definitely did, but there were times where I was like, okay, this is interesting and I'm enjoying it, but what does this have to do with thesis? What does this right, have to do right. with his main argument? No, completely. Um, he got lost in yeah. the sauce with the Churchill stuff, I think for sure. I yeah. mean, we, I, we both responded that way, even in part one, I part yeah. two, again, it had its moments and I enjoyed some of the analyses, but yeah, no. And it's like, did we need all that reflection on Churchill's memoirs? I, you know, there were some interesting tidbits in there about how it affected his legacy and how it showed his response to the new world basically. But right. I don't, it just didn't, I didn't feel like the, yeah, I feel like the thesis was losing a momentum at that point too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like this, this book, if, if he really focused in on the thesis, it would be like half as long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And maybe yeah, it's true. It, it did feel a little indulgent in that way. Okay. Yeah. Did they have any examples in this review that they harped on or something or no? Nope. Okay. Nope. It was a super short review. <laughs> okay. Okay. And then what, any other quotes from it? Yeah. Um, They go on to say, however, even if Ricks isn't convincing in his pairing of the two men, he superbly illustrates that Churchill and Orwell made enduring cases for the necessity of moral and political fortitude in the face of authoritarianism. This is a bracing work for our times. Um, So, obviously, the writer of this article is not sure that the thesis 
I suppose really did work out. So I was just wondering how you felt about like whether you think he accomplished proving his thesis. Again, an odd way to end it because I think his case would be that this that these men show a model of how to uh, live in our time. So it's like yeah. he calls it a bracing work for our times. I think Ricks would read that and be like, "Then I did said then I accomplished what I set out to do, which is <laughs> right. to remind people today how you can transcend party ideologies with a when you have a clearer notion of, you know, liberal ideology or something like it i think that that is what he is saying both men would appeal to even though they wouldn't have maybe put it in those terms or something especially orwell whose politics as we've discussed are can, can be muddy so yeah it's like I, the, I guess the pairing ultimately it does come down to like some convenience of nationality or something like he could have picked another socialist a famous writer i don't know but it it just so happens they live during the same conflicts and they you know, from the same country, I think is doing a lot of heavy lifting here. So I, right. Yeah. The, the fact, you know, if we could have gotten more of Orwell's thoughts on Churchill directly, but he does include that stuff. Um, it's just, there's not very much of it. He had a couple mm-hmm. thoughts on Churchill, thought he actually did an okay job. Wasn't too, you know, was the right kind of leader. Yeah. So I isn't convincing in the pairing. I guess I don't know. I, I guess maybe the pairing is that maybe that criticism's right then because it's it's like each makes its own case. You know, do they have mm-hmm. to intersect that much? Like, not really. Their their ideologies intersect, or you know, their project, grand project intersects, or something. Yeah, I thought the the two, choosing those two in particular, I thought it was interesting because, um, and and I think he did it on purpose because they're political alignments are the opposite yes that is but, critical to it as well for sure right um and and he mentions it a couple of times um and and then even though their their political alignments are the opposite they still have the same core beliefs so i think maybe if he would have maybe explained that more or delved into that particular idea more then it would make for a more convincing pairing between the two yeah or you know what maybe now that we're just thinking big picture maybe a bit more of orwell's political involvement in england proper because it's you know he makes he obviously has to go to spain with him he wrote one of his best books there and he literally went to war for socialism or to defend a form of it in a country like it's so it's you know it's politically important it mattered to the plot of his life whatever but I, it, it almost feels like he became politically neutered in Britain itself. Like he just kind of wanted to say, a, write his ge- general criticism, but not do anything too um, extreme and just kind of just like lay low or I, maybe more of Orwell in Britain would have helped, you know, cause we know about yeah. how Churchill changed parties and he makes it clear that like the man just wanted to follow his, his ideological passions, not so much party loyalties. And he didn't really care who was doing the right thing as long as he deemed it right. You know, that kind of a vibe with him. Um, but yeah, I don't, maybe more of Orwell in England or something would have helped. Yeah, I mean, he did join the Home Guard, maybe more of, like, what he did and what he thought during that time in the Home Guard. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think these two... I'm not going to leave with a deep... I'm not going to remember this as, like, a deep or um, perhaps not deep, but, like, revelatory or shocking connection that, you know, could never have been drawn. or was. It's more just, like, there's some... 
some decent biography work here with some pretty good insights about the politics of the time and and the world events and everything like i but i guess i won't leave it with that knowing that they revealed things about one another i do think though the comparison holds up enough like I, you know as someone who mm-hmm. doesn't have expertise to critique ricks with <laughs> i think that the right. case that's made alone the comparison is like good enough but I, yeah, I could see why the pairing would leave some people cold. I think we criticized some of the tangents or some of the focus shifts and stuff ourselves. So I'll leave right. it th- at that. Any other thoughts on that review? Uh, nope, that's it. Excellent. Okay. Any other thoughts on the fight for freedom, Churchill and Orwell? Uh, I mean, I, I learned a lot and it just really revealed to me how little I actually know about like the russian revolution slash the rise mm-hmm. of communism and right like right. just world war ii in general so <laughs> yeah i will <laughs> i need to go study <laughs> no shortage of scholarship out there for you that's for sure talk about like yeah. most ever studied events i mean it's it's one of the most grand uh in terms of death and destruction uh events ever in human history and it was modern enough to have photographs and videos and you know, people writing at the time and documentation. So it's got to be one of the most written about things to have ever happened on earth, <laughs> basically. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's no shortage of intrigue or, you know, you can dig up all kinds of things on it if you, if you so choose. Maybe we'll return to it on the pod one day. Who knows? World War II casts a large shadow. Yeah. All right. Um, let's conclude this episode. That's been our thoughts on the Churchill and Orwell book. I think we yeah, both enjoyed it pretty well. And I agree with you. I Like I said, I knew a lot of the Orwell stuff, but I think overall it made for a nice refresher. And then he there's some new analysis in there, too, that I appreciated. We yeah. do have other books coming up. If you want to join us for future book clubs, we would love to have you. The next three books that we'll be covering on the podcast in order are Born a Crime by Trevor Noah, You Can't Keep a Good Woman Down by Alice Walker, and My Favorite Thing is Monsters by Emil Ferris, which is a graphic novel, by the way. So if you search it and find a graphic novel, that, that is correct. <laughs> that is accurate. Don't, do not turn off your channel. Um, so we'll be covering those soon. There will be book recommendations for in the feed, as always, on those, followed by the book club episode. So just the usual podcast cadence there. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we'll see you between the pages. Bye.